0: Well, you think you know a guy. At least that's what I thought about Ross Douthat, the incredibly prolific New York Times columnist who in April 2009 became its youngest op-ed writer, at the time replacing Bill Kristol as a featured conservative voice. I'll venture to guess you know Ross's voice from his twice-weekly columns, or perhaps from his New York Times podcast, The Argument, with Michelle Goldberg. He never quits. He's written five books to date, covering the Republican Party, American decadence, elite privilege, bad religion, and possibilities for change within the Catholic Church. Ross is an alum of Harvard College and the great-grandson of Connecticut Governor Charles Wilbert Snow and the son of the incredibly talented Patricia Snow, whose essays in First Things and Elsewhere I just discovered recently. If you're a reader or a writer type, it's not so much what can Ross do, but what can't he do. Well, enter book six, Ross's newest, The Deep Places, a memoir of illness and discovery. It speaks transparently, shockingly, and in a head-on way about his personal six-year struggle of wrestling, loss, and overcoming.
1: Absolutely, a chronic form of Lyme disease exists, and I have spent the better part of six years doing all kinds of things to try and get better from it.
0: The conversation on deck pairs Ross, who with his wife Abby, six years ago, sold their D.C. row house to move to a 1790 farmhouse in Connecticut, only to discover with his medical condition, it was too much to manage, so they moved to urban New Haven. Joining Ross today is Ryan T. Anderson, president of the Ethics and Public Policy Center, who in addition to his four books and hundreds of articles, more recently sold his Capitol Hill row house to move with his wife Anna and young family to a farm in Virginia. This rich conversation, which begins in Friendship Renewed, covers what happened to Ross, his decision to be vulnerable in this book, and his sense of how religious story can provide a kind of strength in the midst of felt pain.
1: I would say that the belief that you are living inside a story, which is sort of, you know, a core religious and especially Christian belief is very, very helpful (laughs) to surviving and enduring through very, very
0: unpleasant experiences. Ross talks about class realities in contemporary America and how suffering always impacts and can even deepen faith, and how in this case, a horrible, nebulous ordeal offers enduring lessons. Enjoy the conversation.
2: Ross, thank you for uh, making time for this and for joining us. I guess my first question that I'm curious about is, how are you doing? How are you feeling?
1: I mean, I've injected myself with a complex formula that mixes ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, several essential oils, and you know, I'm feeling great. One of my feet has become much larger than the others, but that's actually useful for playing soccer in the backyards with my kids. So I'm doing pretty well. So the, the book ends, as you know with a sort of unfinished, unfinished, an unfinished point on the journey back to health. So it sort of carries the story up in my life till about, you know, I'd say seven to nine months ago. And since then, I've, I guess you could say, continued to see slow incremental improvement. As we talk more, I guess listeners can figure out what this means, but I'm down to taking an antibiotic every six weeks or so. (laughs) So That's that's pretty good, and it's like you know. So you're sort of getting to the point where you could imagine, you know, not taking anything at all for the things that are still flickering around in my body. So yeah. So no, I'm. Thank you for asking. But and I have I have improved somewhat, even relative to the improved place where the book ends.
2: And for listeners who haven't read the book or don't even know the topic of the book, why would I even ask? how you're doing. Give, I mean, give, give, I mean, we'll go into more detail, but clue listeners in into, you know, what the book is about. Right. So, so the book is about
1: just, you know, incredibly briefly how I, in the course of moving my family to a beautiful rural retreat in Connecticut, perhaps not unlike the one to which one Ryan Anderson has retreated in Virginia. I almost certainly got Uh, bitten by a deer tick and acquired Lyme disease, which is a well-known Northeastern illness that has an incredible amount of medical controversy around it. And the core of the medical controversy is whether there is a chronic form of Lyme disease, meaning a form that that continues to infect people even after they've taken antibiotics for, let's say, four to six weeks. And the answer to that question that I came to, unfortunately, from personal experience is that absolutely a chronic form of Lyme disease exists. And I have spent the better part of six years doing all kinds of things to try and get better from it, but taking at at various points, incredibly strong doses of antibiotics has been a big a big part of it so that means that when I say that I've you know my antibiotic treatment at the moment after six years consists of a couple pills every six weeks that's that's a major achievement so it's that's 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 what the book is about in part but it's also sort of a you know it's an account of what it's like to have a disease that a big part of the medical establishment doesn't necessarily think exists. It's a story about why you shouldn't invest in rural real estate when your wife is pregnant with your third child, and a lot of a lot of other things besides. I
2: guess. So, so my wife is currently pregnant with our third child, Mazel and, tov, Ryan, uh, <laughs> and thank you. And and just yesterday she brought home our newest uh, livestock. We got a rabbit who apparently a month from now, we'll give birth to anywhere between like eight and 12 bunnies that we will then be able to eat. Yeah, I Uh, I
1: saw you tweeting about this. Now, did you get a lot of a lot of blowback for tweeting about your plans to devour helpless bunnies?
2: I mean, like, this is how human beings survive. Like we're raising sheep, and we're gonna be eating the lamb, we're gonna be slaughtering the lambs in in a couple months. We have goats, which are mainly for for milk, we have chickens, which are mainly for eggs. And we need another source of protein. And rabbit is a very tasty white meat.
0: Well, maybe talk, talk about that a little bit. Would you, about, you know, this is a big decision to leave Capitol Hill. I think Ryan and Anna did that as well. And to move to the country move to Connecticut and have that rhythm of home and away and driving into the city whenever you do go, but also the kind of career as a journalist that gives you the fluidity, as you talk about in the book, to, to not like a lawyer or a doctor need to be in one place. Uh, how's that going up there, that part of it? Want to hear about the title of the book and why? But but, but how's that rhythm going? For for me, yeah, driving for... back and forth. Well, and so we,
1: that. I mean, we lost we lost that rhythm, right? So our our ambition was not unlike the Ryan Anderson ambition, although I I had not, my mind had not yet leaped ahead to the sort of you know Watership Down style bunny bunny rearing but we bought a house so we lived in washington dc for and you know i lived there for about 13 years straight after college with the exception of a brief time in baltimore when we were first married and my wife abby was working at the baltimore sun and then she got a job at smithsonian magazine so we moved back to dc and we lived in capitol hill you know in a row house 10 blocks from the capitol a very, very inside the beltway, deep inside the beltway kind of existence. And like a lot of people, we wanted something different. We were both from Connecticut, our families were up there, we wanted to be closer to them. And I in particular had an idea that, you know, that owning land was really cool. And that being outside in the world, in nature, outside of your head, outside of, you know, Zoom <laughs> calls, which, you know, weren't really a thing back then, but, you know, outside of Twitter and so on, I, I had this sort of asp- this aspiration to own a house more in the country with land. Maybe we would raise chickens, even if we didn't graduate to, to sheep and, and bunny rabbits and so on. And all of this, so all of this, what was fundamentally for me a fantasy, informed the very real decisions that we made to sell our house in a hot real estate market. So we made a lot more money than we expected, and then take that money and plow it into a lovely 1790s farmhouse about an hour and 10 minutes from New York. It's, you know, it's easy to imagine a scenario where it worked out really well for us. But in the event I got really, really, really sick, you know, was sort of in physical pain constantly. My mind was, you know, strangely for a disease that certain doctors think is only in your head, my mind was the only part of me that functioned. So I was able, thank God, to keep doing my normal newspaper columnist duties and to sort of operate on Twitter and, you know, the places that you're supposed to operate, but at the same time time, there was no, there was nothing of what I had imagined. The house and the land became kind of a prison for us. We, you know, we sort of tried to do various things, planting gardens, tearing out hedges, all these things. The land more or less defeated us. And we ended up abandoning the project. And I'm speaking to you now from a you know, very nice freestanding house in a walkable urbanist neighborhood in New Haven, Connecticut, which is where I grew up originally. So there's sort of a, an unexpected homecoming there. Um, but we basically returned to, we returned to urbanism and whatever, you know, whatever the country offers, it wasn't part of God's plan for us, I could say, I would say. And instead it was, I mean, it was literally like the, you know, some people who've read read this book in galleys have said, you know, well, this feels like a sort of Stephen King story where the countryside, the land itself, the, you know, the is sort of poisoned and infected and haunted, you know, and there's sort of a dose of the shining to the story where, you know, my poor wife is trapped in this rambling house that we can't take care of in a Connecticut winter with her husband who, you know, may or may not have a bizarre disease, may or may not be, you know, imagining it all somehow. So yeah, so so basically, the short answer to your question is, (laughs) it went very, very badly. And we did not ever achieve the kind of rural life with sort of cosmopolitan professional engagement balance that as far as I can tell Ryan Anderson and his family have have maintained in the last few years and and I mean Ryan Ryan was this can I can I can I ask whether as someone who's sort of achieved that whether this book was like a particularly frightening experience for, for very, you very much so
2: I mean it, it makes me want to like you know every day take a shower in deep and like make sure in particular my kids like I actually worry more about them getting something like this than myself. Um, just thinking about what you went through during the past five years and imagining if that was happening to a young person, um, you know, I think that's what you know more keeps me up at night. But it was really funny. I, I had forgotten that you lived in Baltimore for a while because you know I grew up in Baltimore. I was living on Capitol Hill. I guess that coffee shop on Eighth Street was like halfway between your place and my place when we were in Capitol Hill. But for me, growing up in Baltimore, this is all foreign. I mean, I grew up, you know, it was a detached house, but it was in the city. My wife grew up on a farm in Illinois. And so, you know, once our uh, first born child started moving, she more or less said, we're not raising a kid in a house in an alley on Capitol Hill. That's how we ended up up here. And then, you know, once COVID hit, we just kind of like jumped in both feet forward and got a bunch of animals, planted a big garden, and the rest is history what I want to ask is how did this start? Cause I mean, I, I what, what I kind of find amazing is that if I remember the book correctly, this started before you had even bought the place. This was like when you were, you know, doing the home inspection at the house is when you most likely think you were bitten by the tick. Is that right? Yes.
1: Yes. So we, this was the summer of 2015 and we, we had, Sold our house in Capitol Hill, which was sort of an important part of the equation. And so we, we had sort of created this in hindsight, insane pressure on ourselves to pick a house to buy in our intended Connecticut Home And really, we should have just, you know, rented, <laughs> rented something and not actually made this commitment. But we had this sense of sort of incredible forward momentum. We, you know, we had this free money to spend, we could, you know, raise our sites for what we were going to buy. And so we found this house and did the inspection and you know the inspection was not something that should have encouraged us to buy the house <laughs> right it was like a rainy day and the inspectors kept finding new problems and new issues all over you know and so was, this was a very sprawling house and property and it was probably on that day that I you know you you walk the property you're going to buy and so I walked down through this you know, this sort of overgrown terrain below the house, which sort of sat on almost on a cliffside above the field that that it owned, where some of the previous owners had kept horses at some point. So, I mean, you can't know for certain, but I, yeah, I mean, I think almost certainly that was the day that uh, I probably got bitten and I, you know, I hadn't, it was probably on my neck. I ended up getting sort of a, a swelling on my neck. That was all that I, saw. I didn't see the actual tick, which ended up obviously being a big part of the problem when it came to figuring out what was wrong with me. But we, yeah, I hadn't, I, so I had sort of uncut hair. And, you know, when you have young children, sometimes maybe you aren't showering every single day. I don't know if either of you guys have had that, that experience. So there could have been a few days where a tick, <laughs> you know, a tick could have made itself at home on, on my, on my neck without without my knowing it. But but in either case, yeah, we had this. So I had this experience where over the course of a summer when we were still in Washington, D.C., because we were you know, we had sort of set up a rent back agreement with the buyers of our house. And we had these couple months, we thought, to sort of, you know, work on the house in Connecticut from a distance. But but during that period was when I basically had this kind of full scale collapse into incredible physical pain total insomnia, you know, being, having phantom heart attacks, going to emergency room after emergency room and losing 40 pounds and, you know, cycling through about 10 different theories for what was actually wrong with me, seeing probably 10 to 15 doctors in that span. And yeah, all of that, all of that was happening before we, we moved. But it also created this dynamic where what happens when you have an illness that can't be pinned down is a lot of doctors, for good reasons, and also I think bad reasons, sort of default to stress-related sort of psychosomatic explanations. So the fact that we were in the process of this big move, this big expensive move with, you know, my wife pregnant and, you know, all these things going on, I think made it easier when I told my story to different doctors for them to say, oh, you know, this guy, he's just under too much, too much pressure as a husband and father and provider, and he's just cracked somehow. And all these symptoms are just a manifestation of that, kind of that kind of breakdown, which was something that I, you know, at times was willing to believe and sort of experimented with believing. But the rest of the time, you know, I was, as I said, in sort of this incredible physical pain, even as my mind continued to sort of function normally. And it was very hard to believe that my mind was actually doing this to me,
0: which, as it turned out, it was not. And I would think for most readers who read you in the Times or have read any of your early books, what is this, Ross, your sixth book?
1: Is it one, two, three? I co-authored one, so five and a half, right? Five and a half, five, fifth and a half book. Shout out to Raihan Salam for that. This is
0: unbelievable that they can't believe you went through this level of duress and pain and struggle while churning out a couple of columns a week. And I guess one question I have for you, readers may know, listeners, excuse me, may know that that I think for a while you and David have shared a research assistant that his last book was more vulnerable it was more transparent it was more open it was more of a a window into his story and so is yours clearly it's transparent in all those ways and in thinking about the title your image of a tuning fork where effectively like your mother talks about in in her essay in first things she was struck like a tuning fork you know you're you you went through something that was um Surely, completely uh, unanticipated, unexpected, unimaginable, and yet you chose instead of sort of continuing to keep keep on more quietly, you chose to tell the story, to be more more vulnerable about that and about these excavations and some of the, the same things that I, I'm remembering that David uh, writes about with Tillich and the like. You know, why, what, what was part of your decision to do that to tell this story?
1: Well, so I I always assumed that I would tell it. I think that. You know, when you're when you're in the depths of something like this and you're a writer, right, there's you know, inevitably some small part of your consciousness that is thinking, "Well, at least this is pretty good material." you know that uh, yeah, I mean that that's I think, you know that's that's sort of, uh, and I mean, it, to be fair, not not everyone thinks. Exactly. not everyone has that sort of dose of writerly narcissism about their own afflictions. And you do get, you know, Norm Macdonald, who just passed away, had a nine year battle with cancer that nobody knew about. And Macdonald has some great sort of, you know, stand up riffs on, you know, why he doesn't think people should sort of take their, take their suffering necessarily and blow it up, blow it up into art. You know, so I, I think you can, I think the question of, when, when to try it is, you know, something that people can disagree about. In this case, though, I think there's sort of the impetus that I'm hoping that the story that I tell can help other people because I could have used (laughs) an exposure to a story like this one when I myself first got sick. And that, you know, that sort of particular to the Lyme debate because there is this incredibly live and fraught debate about the particular illness that I've had. And I do want to sort of weigh in on that debate and say, look, I think, you know, there's complexity here, but most mostly one side is right. And it's the, you know, more unorthodox outside the mainstream side. <laughs> and the other side, the more establishment side is, you know, mostly just wrong. And more people should be aware of that as a possibility when they're you know, whether they're doctors seeing patients or people dealing with their own sickness and trying to understand it. Uh, But then I also think that has applications for larger questions about how chronic illness in general, right? Because chronic Lyme is hardly the only contested chronic illness we're living through with the pandemic, you know, the emergence of a new contested chronic illness, long haul COVID. And then you obviously have things like, chronic fatigue syndrome and fibromyalgia. And, you know, there's there's a very long list of highly debated, poorly understood things that essentially steal people's lives away. So I'm, yeah, I'm I'm hoping that by describing both sort of how I fell into the pit and how I interacted with the medical system after that happened and then how I slowly crawled back out, I can offer something that's helpful to not just Lyme in particular, but anyone, and there's you know many millions of people within that, anyone who's touched in some way by some kind of chronic problem and chronic suffering. So that's, that's sort of the, the practical case for doing this book. But I, I always thought, I, I told myself originally when I was at my sickest that I would never write about it at all, never publicize it at all until I was completely better because I wanted to be able to say, I wanted to be able to basically say, look, I know how to treat <laughs> chronic Lyme disease, right? I'm I'm here, I've gone through this, I have the answer, and there's nothing like weird about, nothing weird or residual about my illness, and I can sort of prove in my own life experience that you can treat a chronic condition and get better from it. But then at a certain point, after like year five or so, you start to think well maybe it'll take me another 15 years to get better and during that time you know i i'm a writer i have a public platform there's a lot of people who could be helped by knowing a little more about how these kind of experiences work and at some point maybe you have to accept that you aren't fully better but it's okay to write about it so that was in the end my thinking when i finally sat down to
0: to write can, can can I ask just to follow up on that? I mean, you you name, I think it's on page 78, that sort of journalists are a storytelling species, that they do this all the time. They're looking for, we're looking for meaning always and trying to stitch together some things. And sometimes you have to sort of take certain events a little bit out of order to tell a narrative that's, that's broadly, you know, true. Uh, and you talk about how sometimes the darkest fairy tales are real uh, as you wrap up that chapter and the zombies and the dreams in the house and... And and I'm curious about whether you think your vocation as a journalist and the sense that story is written into things, written into the nor- universe, but written into your own your own journey to help you uh, at times when it was awful uh, on the floor. You know, the idea that there's a prodigal son journey or that there's a, a Christological journey woven into our own faith is partly like that, too. Was that, was that in, in play uh, as you as you were uncertain as to whether this thing would ever resolve itself.
1: Yeah, I mean, I would say that the belief that you are living inside a story, which is sort of, you know, a core religious and especially Christian belief, is very, very helpful (laughs) to surviving and enduring through very, very unpleasant experiences. It's not universally helpful or perfectly helpful, but... To think that the suffering you're going through is part of a journey that has some kind of destination, that it's being offered for your testing or purgation, as opposed to just being sort of you know, random and meaningless, yeah, I, I think is, is tremendously psychologically helpful which doesn't tell you anything one way or another about, you know, whether whether there is actually a story, right, or whether whether God actually exists. You can go both ways with that. You can say, well, you know, it's helpful because the story is real and there is a pattern to the universe, so if you accept that reality, you will, you know, do better in terms of bearing up under suffering. Or you could say, well, it's just wishful thinking, but it's useful wishful thinking all the same. And I, I don't make any claim in the book that, like, you can sort of, draw definite lessons about literal theological realities from from this kind of experience. I'm focused more on just sort of the you know the the personal psychological experience of it. But within that experience absolutely the the idea of being in a story and trying to do the best you can as a as a character in a story was was very helpful to me. With the other You know, the other thing that I talk about a bit is that, like, you're sort of, you're looking to try and understand what kind of story it is, because you're trying to figure out, you know, just things like what decisions you're supposed to make, right? So, you know, I talked earlier about how this was all, this happened in the midst of this sort of enactment of a fantasy, right? Where we'd always wanted to move to Connecticut, I'd always wanted to have a big house in the country, we had done this, and then this thing happened, right? So you spend a lot of time in the depths thinking about, well, okay, this happened, what does it mean? Does it mean that in the story, we weren't supposed to do this. It was a big mistake. We were arrogant or prideful and, you know, spending all our money on, on, you know, some sort of 18th century fixer upper, right? And what we need, we're being redirected, right? This is sort of like a redirection point in life where you have to give up on a fantasy and do something else. Or is it that you know, the, we actually, there is actually this good life awaiting us in the country, and we just have to sort of get through this, this testing, this purgation in order to achieve it, right? And you, then you go back and forth between those two, you know, inevitably somewhat solipsistic arguments or theories, right? And, you know, in the end, for better or worse, we gave up on, on the country life. And so in the actual story, this experience was a redirection and my life is different than i expected it to be i did not expect to move back to new haven or anything like that but we did because of because of the sickness so that's what the story actually is but you have to make decisions and you have to like play your own role in shaping the story and you know you see through glass darkly you see you, it's like you can almost see what the story is what the arc is sometimes but not quite so you're still groping
2: so i want to follow up on both of josh's most recent questions. And so the first one, it seems like there's a big class dynamic um, in the story that you tell, or at least in, you know, how it played out for you in that, you know, you went to how many different doctors the first couple of months, you know, when you got bag diagnosis after bag diagnosis, at some point, you know, you're spending hours on the internet in different chat rooms and Reddit sub threads, you know, doing your own investigations, visiting doctors, you know, buying kind of, you know, medical machinery that may or may not be FDA approved, et cetera, et cetera.
0: Sneaking that knife machine into the house.
2: Yeah, you're Harvard educated so that you can be doing a lot of research and questioning doctors and pushing back on doctors. You have a job that is largely, so long as your fingers work or you have voice recognition software and your brain works, you don't need to be at an office nine to five. You're not performing manual labor. Uh, and then financially, you know, when you sold the D.C. house, kind of, you know, part of the height of the real estate market. Um, and then, as you know, you've 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 mentioned to listeners, you move to the farmhouse. It doesn't work out. What you reveal in the book is that you have to sell it at a huge you know, financial uh, cost and then move to New Haven. It strikes me that most Americans couldn't have weathered this storm the way that you did during the the struggles with um, Lyme, both. I think you and your wife publish books, uh, yours on Pope Francis, hers on, if I remember correctly, it's, it's on cats, right? The history of the house cat, the rise of the house cat. So, anyway, so I mean, I guess that first question is, just, you know, what is your kind of re- big picture reflection on what this reveals about the American healthcare system, the American economy, the American real estate market? Um, how would an ordinary person who had you know, a chronic form of Lyme have fared? You know what? What would their story have looked like? Uh, what were some of the alternative endings that could have taken place?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the short answer is I, I they would have fared very, very badly, right? And this this is you know one of the one of the many realizations that that I developed over the <laughs> the course of these years was you know at first when you're stricken, all you can think about is how unlucky you are, you know how miserable it is that you've been singled out for this, you know, this scale of sort of constant pain and, and suffering. But then once you get a little bit of improvement and can stand outside your experience a little more, a bit more, you, you have exactly the the reaction that I think you had, Ryan, which is like, you know, I'm incredibly fortunate <laughs> to have a job that I can keep without having to go into the office or on bad days interacting with people at all. I'm incredibly fortunate to have, you know, Various financial resources that come from being upper middle class ivy educated working for the New York Times, you know we're incredibly fortunate that a lot of the money that we lost in the course of this experience was sort of money that we just had gained from from, from a real estate bubble in the first place um and then yeah, and then sort of I'm fortunate in that you know I have both sort of a facility with doing weird research on the internet and the capacity to some extent although this really only takes you so far to sort of sort of treat doctors skeptically to sort of move from doctor to doctor and you know approach things as if you have to become to some extent your your own doctor right and all of that makes me assume and you know you don't have to assume you can you know read about this if you read literature on chronic illness or just sort of spend time talking to other people who have chronic illness, sort of move through that world as I've, as I've done, lots of people are just lost to it, right? You get sick, you don't get better. You, you know, you don't have money, your, you know, relationships and your, maybe your marriage falls apart. People think that you're lazy or a malingerer or that you just have some sort of you know some kind of mental illness that's manifesting itself physically you know there's a whole world as we know from the opioid epidemic and everything related to it of sort of un you know sort of underexplained working class chronic pain without having sort of a a definite specific thesis about this one thing that i came out of this experience with was an assumption that a swath of that is experiences like mine taking place with people who have fewer resources and, you know, fewer luxuries, fewer, fewer, a weaker support system around them. And they just end up being prescribed drugs and, and never, and never figuring out what's actually wrong. And that doesn't mean that they all have Lyme disease or something. There's a lot of different ways that chronic illness and chronic pain can, can manifest in a lot of different causes for that kind of thing. But but yeah, I think the the unimaginability of coping with this this thing that you know robbed you know ro- robbed me of years of normal life without the resources that I had to bring to bear on it. It just it just seems sort of unimaginable. But it's also I'll just say one more thing. There's also a a, a weirdness here about the chronic Lyme debate in particular, which is that. While lots of people of many social classes get Lyme disease in lots of different situations, because it, it has these sort of concentrations in the suburbs of the American Northeast, it is more of an upper, an upper middle class disease than some other, some other similar illnesses. So there is this weird culture. One, one there's sort of this weird culture In the areas around New York City, right, you know, of people who are sort of, you know, pedigreed, highly educated, well-off people who are, you know, totally alienated from the medical (laughs) establishment that is also sort of centered in their neighborhoods and locales. These sort of parallel worlds that coexist in the same town, sometimes even in the same medical practice, of people who think chronic Lyme is fake and people who know that it's real, right? That this this all happens inside the same upper middle class highly educated world. And I found that very strange and I still find it very very strange and kind of unique I think relative, some, relative to some other similar other conditions.
2: The other follow up was, you know, Josh had asked about the narrative and the Christological kind of like arc of your story. Share with listeners, I mean, how did this challenge your faith? How did it deepen your faith? How did your faith help you process it? How did it, you know, stand in the way of you processing it? I mean, there are many scenes in the book where you are in a chapel, sometimes lying prostrate. This is the Faith Angle podcast. So, I mean, re- reflect on, you know, how your faith intersected with this bodily uh, challenge.
1: So, I mean, part of it is what I, what I said before, right? That the desire to, the will to believe gets stronger or it got stronger for me. I think you can, I can imagine a scenario where something like this, you know, has a breaking or shattering effect on a certain kind of faith. But I would say mine seemed to get stronger out of, again, out of necessity, not out of evidence. Exactly. There are a few sort of strange occurrences that happened to me over the course of the illness that I detail in the book that you might think of as spiritual signposts but none of them were any kind of you know sort of definite revelation or mystical mystical transforming encounter they were all open to varying interpretations and so it it was much it yeah it, it was much more a sort of the the will to believe the need to believe got stronger because it was important to to think of this as something that was a trial that i had been given rather than just a randomness that the universe had had imposed so that that was part of it i would say the way that that manifested itself was not in any kind of like deepening of my prayer life or you know there there wasn't a a sort of a new feeling of closeness to god there was stronger belief but in in other ways there was greater distance right because god was transformed much more from this sort of you know benevolent force supervising my progress through <laughs> through the meritocracy <laughs> to a you know more uh, ecclesiastical old testament figure doling out the kind of tribulations that you know a spoiled privileged harvard graduate probably deserved so was definitely more fear of God and more, more prayer that just takes the form of sort of desperate supplication, right? Like I've, I've never been very good at sort of prayer as, as a discipline, but I definitely wasn't any good at it in the depths of pain and illness. I would, like you said, I would go into an empty church and just sort of sit there and beg, I guess, that would be beg for help. That was that was sort of the core of religious experience for me. And then there's, you know, with the the fear of God, there is a certain kind of like, you know, a, a fear of what he might do next, right? That, you know, if you can sort of if you look at something as a tribulation, that's good news in the sense that it has meaning and purpose, right? You're trying to get through it, you're trying to gain something from it, some wisdom, some, you know, moral improvement, some purgation. But just because it has a purpose doesn't mean that you have any guarantee that it's going to end, <laughs> right? You can look at, you know, as a Catholic, you can look at the lives of the saints and see people whose tribulations, whatever they were, lasted their entire lives. So yeah, there's no, there, there's a certain kind of, you know, God's going to make it get better comfort that I don't think I ever particularly felt and, you know, still don't necessarily feel now, right, now that I've things have gotten a lot better. But you have a stronger sense, even once things get better, that, you know, something new could be visited on you tomorrow. So, you know, I wrote one of of the books that you mentioned that I've written was called Bad Religion. And it was a critique of different aspects of American Christianity or sort of American religion as it exists in after the decline of Orthodox Christianity. And I spent a certain amount of time critiquing you know, both the prosperity theology of Joel Osteen and that that kind of stuff, and the sort of God within new agey theology of Oprah and Eat, Pray, Love, right? Where in both cases, sort of liberal and conservative, there's a sense of like, you know, what God really wants is for you to do well and be happy. So I'd I'd written all this material about why this was wrong, (laughs) right? Why why this was not a, a correct account of God and his relationships to human beings. But one of the revelations from actually getting really sick myself is that I was, you know, I had my own kind of prosperity theology, right? Where in the abstract, I understood that, you know, bad things could happen to good people. And, you know, they happened to Jesus Christ himself. So you should actually expect it. But in reality, at age 35, I just sort of assumed that if you made the right choices that, you know, your life would would go, go along pretty well. So I was an I was a Joel Osteen. I I had a sort of Joel Osteen attitude towards God of my own that I think has now been cured by this experience.
0: That's very lovely of you to say. And gosh, got to be hard. The hellishness of what you describe in the book is just brutal and also inviting. So buy the book, everybody for listeners, but it is a gripping, it's a
1: gripping read. That's, that's a really strong, a strong advertisement, man. Buy the book because it's, it's really, really harrowing. I mean, when it's, it's a, it's a novelty to, to write a book like this because people will send you emails and, and saying, wow, Ross, that was a really harrowing read. And I'm never sure whether to write back and say, well, I'm glad you enjoyed it <laughs> or you know, to say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for imposing it on you. Well, I mean, on exactly.
2: on you. I think it's, it's a page turner. Enjoyable. People, people,
1: people who read it read it very
2: quickly. So it has that going for yeah. it. it's not enjoyable in the kind of like pleasurable, sensory, you know, empiricist sense, but it is uh, surprisingly satisfying uh, because it's a gripping narrative and it's reflecting on kind of big questions that matter. Uh, I think I read it in either one or two sittings. And it, I mean, it it invites reflection on the part of of readers. Um, So, you know, I agree with Josh. Everyone should go out and get it.
0: Um, And it does land on a different place, right? Than like what Molly Worthen and Kate Baller describe, you know, the idea of sort of Joel Osteen, Osteen, as you say, you know, landing on perfect health. And typically, of course, once you're there and things are going well, you don't want to hear about this kind of story. You don't want to get over to that. The kingdom of the unwell, of the illness you know, stricken, but you want to stay where things are nice and, and neat and tidy and Ryan had asked about class earlier so I guess I'd be curious, exit question for me, Ross, you have that image at the end of the book of Eustace you reintroduce that and the idea of, I think the story is where like Aslan sort of scratches beneath the scales
1: of the character um, Right, he turns, this, he says in Voyage of the Dawn Treader in the Narnia books he, he's a extremely unpleasant boy who gets magically transformed into a dragon and has to go through this kind of very literalized peeling and stripping purgatorial process to become a human being again.
0: So just to return to Ryan's question for a minute, did did that six-year struggle, which in some ways is still ongoing, right? It's like people with diabetes, you just have to keep fighting it and tacking to the left and to the right. But did it make you more tender toward those with more hardship? I mean, you would you would hope so. I, I think that
1: it I think to the extent that there's a negative temptation from an experience like this, it's probably to not be tender enough towards people whose problems are are primarily mental, right? So if you have a, if you have a sickness and you're told that it's all in your head, and then it turns out not to be all in your head, <laughs> it's very much in your body, and you treat it with you know with constant physical interventions right this is this is ultimately a book about how innumerable physical interventions made me better not where i you know prayed and practiced mindfulness and gradually improved probably there's a temptation then to sort of overweight physical suffering as opposed to mental suffering that's that's something i think about a little bit where you know the the temptation becomes to read about somebody dealing with, you know, sort of more purely psychological issues and say, well, at least, you know, at least your spine isn't inflamed all the time the way mine was um, or something. So if I was going to sort of, if I was going to sort of talk about temptations that come in from this kind of suffering, that, that would be, that would be where I would focus. But in, in general, I think, yeah, I, I think so. I hope so that I, I have more, I have more of a sense just of, you know, how commonplace deep suffering is of various kinds and how much it's sort of covered over and hidden by the way we interact with each other, especially I think the way the internet encourages us to interact with each other. You know, and the, and there's sort of when you when you're really sick and you you know, lose all filters, (laughs) which I did for a while where, you know, anyone you talk to or introduced to, you end up talking about your experience. You know, there's sort of a secret fraternity of chronic pain and chronic suffering. And you don't realize how large that fraternity is until you become the sort of person who's always willing to start the conversation by saying, you know, man, I've got this terrible illness and I can't get better from it. Right. So at the very least, I think I've learned something important about the scope of hidden suffering as a fact of human life, but especially life, even in the most privileged parts of of America.
2: We only have a few minutes left. So my kind of closing question, one part's practical, one part is more global. Practically, what's your advice to people with respect to not getting a bit by a tick to begin with. What's uh, your know, <laughs> advice to someone like me, or what to do if you do discover you have Lyme? But then, more global, you know, w- what is the biggest lesson you learned from this? And, and, and partly, what, what I'm curious is like how this impacted you as a father and a husband. You know, how your experience impact your children. Your, I, I believe you guys welcomed number four, not just number three at the beginning, but then you had a fourth while this was ongoing. What did you learn kind of about your vocation as father and as husband? And how did this um, help you to grow in those areas? So for
1: the Lyme question, you know, the the easy answer is check your kids for ticks. <laughs> Don't roll around in high grass. Mow your lawn really tightly. Uh, put beds of wood chips between the spaces where your kids play and the deeper woods. I mean, there's, you know, there's, there's a whole list of sort of things you can do if you live in the country to minimize your exposure. And then the reality is if you get, you know, if you find a tick on you, even if it's not embedded, honestly, take a prophylactic dose of antibiotics, which I think now lots and lots of doctors will give. That wasn't the case 10 or 15 years ago. But that's, and, and the truth is that for Lyme to really take root in someone, you need to miss a certain number of early signs, usually. So if you're hyper aware of it, as I was not hyper aware, you know, living in Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. with doctors who didn't see a lot of Lyme patients, if you are hyper aware, your odds of having it become deeply embedded and chronic and in need of long-term treatment are relatively low. So that would be the sort of positive news that I try to give people who maybe live near deep woods in rural parts of the Northeast in terms of the lessons. I mean, so there's, you know, there's sort of the lesson about being a husband and, and father is in part, a lesson about endurance and figuring out how to be present to other people and helpful to them when you are st- struggling to find any joy or pleasure in life yourself. I thought a lot about that kind of thing and worked a lot on that on that kind of thing, but I I think to, the the book ultimately is it's less it's about endurance, right? It's about finding ways to live with illness and pain. But it's but it is about the quest to get better fundamentally. And even though I'm not fully better, I have gotten a lot better and I don't know if I could have sustained you know, myself as a good father, as a good husband, if I had been in exactly the same pit of pain for 25 years or something, I needed to find ways to get better in order to continue to be sort of, you know, what I needed to be for my family. And there, I think, you know, there are the the message of the book is that there are lots of things about illness and the body that are medical establishment and sort of existing medical knowledge doesn't fully understand. And there may be points in your life when you do have to, you know, become incredibly experimental about your own health. Ultimately, you know, you are responsible for your own health in some sense, not in a crazy, you know, I'm not going to take any vaccines or (laughs) do chemotherapy if I get cancer and so on, right? I mean, obviously there are, there are negative temptations with that attitude but the f- fundamental attitude is is actually correct like there are situations where you will be in positions where only you or maybe some people close to you can help yourself you have to be willing to experiment you have to be willing to work you have to be willing to sort of treat your own suffering as an empirical problem try and figure out what you can do and take that will make you feel better on your own without sort of some definite script to follow and you know in fighting for your life you can save it at least for a time which at this point relative to where i was i think i think i have done and i wouldn't have written the book if i hadn't gotten at least that far because i think that's ultimately the most yeah the most important message for anyone dealing with some kind of chronic or difficult to understand condition of their own
2: yeah well well, thank you for um, you know taking the time to chat with me and Josh. The book is profound. Where can listeners buy the book? You know, where wherever
0: wherever books
1: are sold, I would say, is where you can find it.
0: Thank you, Ryan. Thank you, Ross, so much. It's a very different book. Enjoy it. Thanks, guys. Faith Angle brings together leading journalists and leading scholars and clerics. Thanks for listening.